Hey, Bankless Nation. Welcome to our special live stream. This is going to be a panel edition. I think, David, this is going to be our dankest panel, maybe the dankest episode we have ever recorded because we are talking about dank sharding today. And I got to be honest, going to this episode, I'm not entirely sure what it means. Like, what is dank sharding? But we'll ask uh, some of the participants this. And maybe, David, you could describe the setup of this panel and who's on it and how we're going to handle this episode. Yeah, of course. You guys all know Tim Bako. He's the guy on the bottom of the screen. Tim manages the All Core Devs Call and is coordinating the lead into the merge and beyond. And we've had Tim Bako on before. During He led a very technical EIP 1559 panel uh, and asked the questions that Ryan and I are just not smart enough to ask. Uh, so this is one of those panels. We're going to get as technical as possible. Uh, we have three fantastic panelists who are behind the scenes. We've got Vitalik, Dankrat, and Proto, uh, who are the minds behind dank sharding uh, and sharding in general and other Ethereum-related technologies. Uh, and Tim is going to be able to ask questions that are the technical questions, the smart questions. Uh, but before we get there, Tim, we just need to want to cover some high-level stuff. What is dank sharding? How to get its name? And just like, what does it mean for users? Right. Well, first, yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, so dank sharding and proto-dank sharding, which we'll also get into, are iterations over the sharding design for Ethereum. Um, and we'll spend you know, the bulk of this panel discussing what they are, what the trade-offs are, and whatnot. Uh, but at a high level, sharding is a way for Ethereum to have more data pass through the network. And because layer two solutions uh, like uh, ZK rollups and, and optimistic rollups, uh, they produce a lot of data. If we have a way for them to post that to the Ethereum network more cheaply, uh, it immediately reduces how much they need to charge users for transactions. So all of these kind of flavors of sharding all have kind of the same end goal, which is to create a cheap place for layer two solutions to post data on Ethereum. And the impact of that is that the transaction fees that end users end up paying on layer twos is, uh, is lowered by a lot. So this is all about getting transaction fees down, particularly on layer twos, gas fees down on layer twos. And, and Tim, is this related? You mentioned proto dank sharding and dank sharding. You guys will talk about all that in the panel, but is this related to EIP 4844? Because that's another EIP we've heard a lot about. Yes. So EIP 4844 is proto dank sharding, basically. And one way to think about it is like proto dank sharding is like maybe the first step we get towards sharding. And then dank sharding is the simplification that we'd had on the previous roadmap. So like the, the more prefixes we have, it's like the sooner we get them. Um, yeah. All right. And this has been, uh, like you said, an iterative cycle, an iterative process to get to where we are today. Uh, and dank sharding comes from Dankrad, who's on the panel. And proto dank sharding comes from proto, uh, proto Lambda, who's also on the panel. So these guys' names have been baked into the, the name of this EIP itself. Tim, is this the new EIP 1559? Is EIP 4844 going to be the new EIP that we focus about going into the future? So there's a lot of stuff we're working on right now. So, you know, it's definitely one of the big ones. Um, and I think for end users, it's one of the most impactful ones because it directly affects like the, the gas price they pay. Um, hopefully it's much less contentious than 15559 was. Um, but yeah, it's definitely an EIP you're going to be hearing more about over the next few months. 
And just one last question before we hand it over to the panelists and we bring the panelists online. Uh, there's been a bunch of conversations about, you know, when EIP 1559 came and go, people were like, is this going to reduce gas fees? And the answer is no. Uh, and then people are like, uh, the Ethereum merge, is that going to reduce gas fees? And the answer is no. This EIP reduces gas fees. This reduces transaction fees, not for the layer one, but for the layer twos, correct? Yes, on layer twos. Yes, that's correct. Um, okay. And basically, 4844 is a way for us to get some of the reductions of sharding quicker. And then the full dank sharding rollout gives us even more reductions. Uh, but because 4844, aka proto dank sharding, is, is simpler to implement, uh, we can just get that first. Fantastic. All right. I think that is all of my questions. And I think that's all of Ryan's questions. So with that, I'm going to ask the panelists to come in from the shadows and turn on their, their cameras. And me and Ryan are going to actually duck out of here. Excuse me. We're going to dank out of here uh, and let Tim <laughs> nice. take over this stream. Uh, guys, Good luck, welcome, guys, welcome to the panel. And, and Tim, thank you for doing this. And then absolutely just take it away. Okay, sweet. Uh, it's just us now. Um, so I guess, yeah, but before we get into it, uh, do you each want to just take a minute and kind of talk about like, what you work on and who you are. Um, yeah, Vitalik, we can start with you. Um, yeah, so hi, um, I'm Vitalik. I'm the co-founder of Bitcoin Magazine. Um, I write a blog. I contribute to specs once in a while. Great. Uh, Dankrad? Yep. Hi, I'm Dankrad. I'm an Ethereum researcher since uh, 2019, and um, I'm working on, uh, among others, sharding and um, uh, what else do I work on? Proof of custody, um, statelessness. Yeah, some some projects on the on the roadmap of Ethereum. Nice and Proto. Hey, hello. I'm Proto Lemta. Um, I used to work at the Ethereum Foundation on research there. Now I do the same thing, but on Optimism. I helped with sharding earlier on, and now I'm contributing back to uh, Layer One while working at Optimism and Layer Two. Sweet. Um, okay, so just to kind of get into sharding generally, um, over like the past couple of years, what sharding means at Ethereum has changed a lot. Um, and I think like the biggest one is like this shift from full execution sharding to only data sharding. Um, Vitalik, do you kind of do you want to give us just an overview of like how that shift happened in the research roadmap and, and why we've landed on just doing data sharding? Yeah, so I think there's been this uh, ongoing simplification of the sharding roadmap that started really sometime in uh, 2016. Uh, so for people who have been in the Ethereum ecosystem for a long time, you might remember some of the scaling docs that we published back in 2015, back in early 2016, some of the blog post thinking that uh, came out in 2014. And the stuff that was there in those earlier periods was in a lot of ways really complicated, uh, right? Um, like there were these uh, ideas around hypercubes and uh, hub and spoke chains and uh, in protocol supported uh, cross shard transactions that would be routed between like one corner of a hypercube to another corner and, and where the protocol would help them move from like one shard to another, to a third, to a fourth. There was uh, even thinking about super quadratic sharding, which is basically saying like, instead of just having shards, you have shards on top of shards and uh, potentially like in infinite hierarchy of uh, shards inside of shards inside of shards. So actually the sort of stuff uh, that the yeah, Telegram uh, time project ended up uh, incorporating into their paper, though I guess uh, that never really ended up uh, coming close to going live, unfortunately. 
Um, but uh, that was the kind of thinking that we had back in 2015 and 2016. And I think after that, the progression has just been this like big slow process of, uh, I guess, increasing pragmatism, um, increasing appreciation of uh, how complicated it is to develop and actually bring to production just about anything. Um, like what feels like 10 lines of code actually becomes like hundreds of lines of code once uh, you add all of the uh, complexities that clients have to inevitably have and deal with, uh, you know, how some particular thing interacts with the syncing process, how some particular thing interacts with the fork choice, how some particular thing in interacts with the database um, and the need to store it in optimized formats and that sort of stuff. So the process of uh, simplification, I think the big first step was definitely the decision to not bother with anything beyond quadratic sharding and uh, just say we're doing quadratic sharding, right? So not bother with uh, say, with doing ever any kind of shards on top of shards and just saying we have the beacon chain, we have shards, shard headers are connected to the beacon chain, uh, and that's it. Like that's the only layer of sharding that ends up actually happening. So that was the first step. Then the second step was the move from this uh, uh, concept of like chains that have regular commitment blocks in the beacon chain. I think there was another word for them. I forget what 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 that word is. Uh, crosslinks was the word, right? You have shard chains that crosslink into the beacon chain. Uh, so moving from that to a system where you just have every shard block directly get included in the beacon chain. So. That was the second simplification. I forget exactly when that happened. I think that might have been around 2019 or 2020 or so. And the big benefit of that simplification is that it meant that we didn't have to worry about shard chains uh, anymore. Uh, then after that, uh, there was uh, the uh, idea that we're going to do data sharding first. Uh, this was when I started talking about the roll-up centered roadmap, um, right? Basically, instead of shard blocks actually containing transactions that would be ex executed at the Ethereum layer, these uh, shard blocks would just contain big blobs of data. And it would be the responsibility of layer two rollup protocols to use that data space in order to create secure and uh, more scalable experiences for their users, right? So Ethereum, the system would provide non-scalable computation and scalable data. And what a rollup does is it converts scalable data and non-scalable computation into a scalable computation. Uh, so we have a uh, somewhat more performant layer one that has extra data space. And then we uh, combine that with this layer two ecosystem and the layer two ecosystem ends up like really bringing all of the uh, scalability to life. So that's the roll-up centric roadmap. And at the beginning, I think uh, the roll-up centric roadmap was phrased in this ambiguous way where it basically said, well, look, the roll-up centric roadmap realistically like data sharding is the obvious prelude to full sharding anyway, right? Like if we're going to implement full sharding with EVMs on all shards, it's just an obvious first step to have data shards first. But it turns out that data shards uh, are actually really good for rollups already. Uh, and so we might as well run with that. We might as well realize the rollups are our best hope for short-term scalability and, and just take that uh, direction and try to make the best of it, right? And that still leaves open the door for adding EVM execution shards in the future, but it basically says, well, actually, um, you know, Ethereum will be fine even if we end up never actually completely doing that, right? So 
that's roll-up centric uh, roadmaps. That's another simplification, basically saying we don't have to bother with execution on shards. And then that um, also allowed some other simplifications, like it made it even more possible for shards to not bother with fortress rules, for example. And then the next simplification after that is dink sharding, where it basically said that there's actually this merged proposal mechanism where there's only one proposer that chooses all of the uh, um, shard blocks on all of the shards that uh, appear within a particular beacon block. And that simplifies things massively in a whole bunch of ways. So it basically means we don't have to deal with like the whole shard proposer bureaucracy, which simplifies uh, consensus complexity a huge amount. It uh, simplifies um, some of the economic properties a huge amount. It basically makes the system feel much more similar to like just what a non-scalable chain would look like, except it's just more scalable, right? And that it's extra scalability happens in the background. And then prototype sharding finally, like that's not a simplification. That's more a uh, step on the way to full dink sharding that gets us maybe half the benefits of uh, sharding, but uh, at a point that's maybe okay, like halfway along the uh, timeline to actually getting full sharding out there. So we actually get some of the benefits sooner, right? So that was the general progression, like basically more complexity to less complexity, more, um, more of Ethereum trying to do everything to less Ethereum trying to do everything and more willingness to uh, work with layer two protocols um, and th those two things together. And that's where we are now. Nice. Yeah, thanks. That was, that was comprehensive. Um, Degrad, like talking about thanks sharding, like can you kind of walk us through how, like this idea that it's okay to assume that the block proposers or the block builders have to track all of the shards because of this separation between proposers and builders that we've seen kind of over the past few years, especially with the rise of MEV. Um, so yeah, just talk us through like, why is it possible to do something like dank sharding and not sacrifice the decentralization properties of, of the chain? Right. Um, yeah. So I guess, I mean, uh, maybe like if, if we go a bit into the, the history of MEV, like, or maybe think about um, how, how it has been recently. So like um, it started with maybe like maybe some mi mining pools um, doing some stuff like to exploit MEV and like to like, uh, yeah, to, to make, to get some more than just the transaction fees. And um, over, over the course of time, this has become more and more uh, professionalized. Like nowadays, most of them work with some other entity, for example, Flashbots flash that um, sells them complete bundles of, uh, or yeah, maybe selling is the wrong word here, that buys complete slots for bundles uh, to be included in blocks uh, that uh, exploit a certain amount of MEV. And then, uh, and then the um, block producers, which are currently the miners, they just get the payment for that. They get like, um, so uh, yeah, so those, those, those searches are now like lots of independent entities that uh, try to find the best MEV and, um, and mining pools now don't have to bother with this anymore. And, um, and basically um, it turns out that uh, if you want to properly decentralize this, which is something we really want to do, like, um, so right now there's like maybe um, a few mining pools, like um, tens of them or so. And so like the way it works right now is that uh, basically Flashbots has a 
a business relationship with each of them like they they basically have a trusted relationship and um if like uh, one of one of the two sides did something naughty like for example the um the miner could start um, looking into the strategies and instead of um, just executing them they could like exploit the strategies themselves so for example if you have a an arbitrage transaction then like you can often uh do much worse things with the individual trades if you if you want to exploit them um, or like they could try to figure out what the strategies are by by what they are being sent and so on um, so um, this this doesn't scale to a system where instead of like a few tens of mining pools we have uh, probably tens of thousands or so of individual validators um, because you can't have like a trust relationship with each, with each of them. That's not going to work. Um, so the only way to translate this uh, world of MEV into, um, into the uh, future of proof of stake is, is by having some form of proposal builder separation. The way proposal builder separation works is that um, instead of having uh, traditionally like I guess like five years ago, we all thought of it as the same thing. If you propose a block, you build that block, right? And with proposal builder separation, that's not true anymore. What we do instead is uh, someone, a builder builds a block and the proposer just proposes, oh yeah, I'm gonna propose that block that this guy built. Um, so we separated the two roles. And um, in, in that way, we can have a professional role of block building, building which is uh, this role that will extract MEV or work with all the searches and so on. And we can have the proposer and that is just a normal validator. And the good nice thing is proposing is extremely simple and cheap because it's basically just selecting the highest bid and saying, yep, uh, you get to build the block. And uh, whereas building is a complex process where you have to manage uh, lots of searches and they have to trust your system that uh, their strategies won't get exploited and so on. Um, so that, that is more suited for a complex and more uh, capitalized entity. And so um, um, it's, it's good that not, not everyone has to do it. And uh, basically this is, uh, this is the, I guess this is how we're seeing the future of block building on Ethereum. There's not, there's not really currently a viable alternative to this world. Um, and, um, and what we also know uh, is that um, sort of building this, uh, building scalable system, especially also building this massive uh, data availability system uh, becomes a lot easier once you assume that there is someone who can handle these massive amounts of data. So once you put that entity into the system and say, well, um, there's someone who can compute this encoding, who can distribute all this data and so on, then many things become a lot simpler. And so in the past, um, I guess we didn't really think about these designs because we were like, well, we want Ethereum to be extremely decentralized. Um, and now with, the, with this proposal building se builder separation coming into the design space due to MEV, it's also become available um, to think about for other things. And basically this is how we, or like I first thought at the end of last year, well, let's use this, let's use this idea where you have these 
uh, entities that can handle, for example, large amounts of data. It's not really a problem if you are like running some large machines anyway. It's not like an absolutely insane amount. It's not data center kind of amount. It's just like large machines with a good internet connection kind of amount. And um, and uh, exp uh, yeah, ex exploit these entities and uh, and let them basically do this building. And that allows us to uh, get to a much uh, simpler and more efficient charting design. Got it. Um, and so am I right in thinking like, because it's basically very hard to build an optimal block that becomes a specialized industry, but once you do have a block that is, it's very easy to verify its validity, right? Like, so, right. you know, finding so the that, exact that is, right block to exactly. build is, is hard. And so you need, you know, tons of machines to do that. But once you have found it, then anyone can verify it. It's almost analogous to proof of yeah. work in that way uh, mm -hmm. for like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely correct. Like basically verifying. I mean, that's that's the that's the crux of um, data availability checks. They, this idea that um, there there is a way to check that this amount of data is available that needs much less work than actually downloading all the data. So there's this asymmetry um, where like there's someone somewhere we need to do this work of encoding the data and distributing the data, but then verifying it is much easier. Got it. Um, okay, and to get us all the way to prolo-dig charting now. Um, so recently, the three of you have have written an, an EIP, EIP four eight four four, that's now colloquially known as prolo-dig charting, um, which helps kind of lay the foundation for this full charting design um, without require without requiring this entire kind of shard data network to to be live. Um, Proto, do you want to walk us through like? what are the things that 4844 does to get us towards sharding? And also like, how does that help layer twos? Like how do L2s then use 4844 to provide their users with lower transaction fees? Right, so we just ended with how dunk sharding basically introduces data availability sampling and these other new advanced tech features to try and distribute this job across the network better. But this comes with additional complexity. It will more, take more time to properly test and introduce it to Ethereum. So instead of waiting for the full version of Dank sharding, we can reduce the feature set and go with a amount of data in between these things. We can offer additional data and we can look at layer twos, like what kind of security properties they need and optimize for that. And you can already make a big win there. And then later with the additional features, you can get to full dank sharding. And so what we start with here is the changes to pay for the data as a layer two, this type of transaction that introduces the data to the network. And we need some changes to distribute the data across the network, but it won't be as much data just yet. So it's manageable by the whole network to download and so we don't need sampling yet. And we can have everyone download the data. Got it. And how, yeah, how does a layer two then use that data? Like from say Optimism's point of view, how do you actually leverage that? Is it just changing where you post the data that's currently posted in, in normal transactions as call data? Um, right. so is, this is... is there more involved? You need to 
optimize what the layer two really needs. You can take apart all the things that the layer two uses. One of those things is publishing the data, making sure that this honest minority that protects the layer two uh, is able to get the data in the first place. And then there's this other property that the layer two uses right now of getting the data long-term, but these are very different. Data availability is this property that ensures actors are able to get the data. And this can be for a more limited amount of time. And so you do need to ensure that even with downtime and even with censorship and whatever other unforeseen circumstances, these actors on the network on layer two are able to get the data. But then after some amount of time, this should be sufficient to guarantee the security of the layer two, because you want the actors to be able to reconstruct the state, because only with a full state, only with the full history, they're able to challenge the operator, or challenge the sequencer of the rollup. Got it. Um, I think we've mentioned like a few times already, and I want to make sure we, we kind of clarify for folks is this idea of data availability. And I think this is something that at least to me was not like clear until I spent way more time looking at the sh into sharding is like what, when we say data availability, what exactly do we mean? And how is that different than like the data we store on like the Ethereum blockchain today? Um, I don't know Vitalik, do you want to give a quick overview? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a very important and a subtle topic. Like, I think even the, the really big point of comparison a lot of people have is like, what's the difference between what we're doing and IPFS, right? Um, and uh, this, like, IPFS is a platform where if you publish data, um, then that, like, presumably, um, you know, if the incentives are right and if enough people care about the data, the data gets broadcasted, and then anyone who wants to download the data is uh, able to download the data. The difference between that and what Ethereum is uh, doing and going to be doing is that uh, Ethereum is and will be providing consensus on uh, data availability, basically. So you just, you can always have a hard consensus on the question of whether or not a piece of data with a particular hash or a particular commitment actually is available. Um, and what we mean by available basically is, did, what, did the data go through this publication process where it got broadcasted on a public network and anyone who wanted to um, actually download the data actually did have a lot of time during which they could have downloaded the data. Uh, so, Basically, the, the, the difference between that and uh, something like IPFS um, has to do with uh, the case of a uh, malicious publisher, right? Um, like if I'm, I'm a malicious publisher, then like on IPFS, I could potentially do something where, um, you know, I get control some small number of servers and then I publish to a small number of servers and then a small number of servers might respond to and say data is available to some people, but they might not respond to other people. And so some people get the data, other people don't get the data, but you never actually like get this kind of very binary consensus on whether or not the data was actually published. Now, the reason why this uh, kind of concept of consensus uh, on data availability is necessary um, has to do with uh, a lot of these uh, layer two protocols where those layer two protocols depend on data being um, out there and uh, use, like, not downloaded by everyone by default, but downloadable by anyone in the case that they want to download it uh, for some uh, security properties, right? 
So one very simple example is a ZK rollup, right? In a ZK rollup, you have a sequencer. That sequencer accepts transactions. That sequencer publishes these blocks uh, that contain state deltas. They contain a proof. Um, and that sequencer also contain, like basically manages this kind of internal state. Like what is the state of the ZK, uh, like, you know, the balances, contracts, whatever inside of that ZK rollup. Um, now, the difference between a ZK rollup and a Validium, right, is that a ZK rollup has like state deltas or inputs on chain. In a Validium, you only have the proofs on chain and you have everything else off chain. From a point of security point of view of like, can they force invalid stuff to go into the system? Both rollups and Validiums both protect against that, right? Because so the ZK Snark prevents you from actually bringing anything, anything invalid. The place where they're different is what happens if the sequencer disappears, right? What happens if the sequencer becomes malicious um, and uh, they just basically shut off from the network, never talk to anyone again. And the reason why they do this is basically that because they want to make, just make the make it not possible for someone else to like interact with that system going forward. And so if people have money inside the system, that money gets stuck. Now, in a Validium, this is actually a problem. If the yeah, Validium operator does this, then they can't steal, but they can make people's money stuck. Um, and so, you know, if they're really mean, they could potentially like extort and they can basically say like, hey, you know, if the whales don't like send 20% of their money to a ransom address, then they're just going to make everyone's money stuck forever. In Ezekiel Rollup, on the other hand, there's this uh, guarantee that because the either the inputs or the state deltas get published to the chain, if the original sequencer disappears, you can always have a new sequencer come in, read the data from the chain, and basically initialize the exact same state that the original sequencer has, and so be in the exact same position and have the exact same capability to then be able to continue providing ZK rollup blocks, processing withdrawals, and uh, processing transactions, right? So because that data is on chain, and so someone else can come in and reconstruct it and like basically slot themselves into the same role, uh, you don't have this uh, same security problem that Validiums have, right? So the difference between the two basically is data like in this like on chain or is it off chain? Now, why does it matter if it's on chain? Because on chain is a very simple, convenient medium where if you see the data is on chain, even if you don't personally process it, even if you personally don't care about it, you still know that if something terrible happens and you need it to recover, then you will be able to like actually go on chain and grab that data, right? Um, so what proto dink sharding and like and then eventually full dink sharding try to do is they basically try to like really zero in on providing a platform that provides exactly that capability, right? So the beacon chain would actually only contain hashes of data. And so if you're a client, then you would base, you'd be just downloading the beacon chain and you would get hashes of everything. But when I say hashes here, I mean like hashes of uh, KZG commitments and the, uh, you know, blah, blah, complicated math. But like, think of them as hashes. Like actually, yeah, it is a, um, KZG is a cryptographically valid hash function by, by yeah, you know, definitions of uh, collision resistance and pre-image resistance and so forth. Um, but uh, basically, yeah, the actual full data would instead live in this like sharded system where it would be inside of shards and it would be inside of peer-to-peer -peer subnetworks. Um, and the point of all of this machinery around data availability sampling and that sort of stuff is to basically provide a way of uh, kind of checking and guaranteeing that the data actually has been published through this mechanism where if in the future you need it, you will be able to get it without actually requiring everyone to like directly download all, uh, all of the data themselves, right? 
Now, the chain does not have to store the data the, or the shards do not have to store that data forever, right? So like the plan is for them to delete that data after some period of time. Like it's, uh, you know, numbers have been thrown around of like somewhere like could be 30 days, could be a couple of months. And then uh, basically, yeah, but, but the point is to give enough time that any mechanism or like anyone that wants to be able to download the data will be able to download the data and like for there to be enough time that for all of the people that would be making backups for related to a particular application to actually have the time to do that, right? So basically, you can you know, create the system that's like really optimized around this idea of like, how can we just provide this exact guarantee of like data availability, like proof that the underlying data behind a particular hash has actually been published to this public notice board where if people want it, they, um, they can get it. Um, so the rollups and layer twos can, can take advantage of that for scalability without incurring the complexity costs of like actually trying to shard um, like, you know, like full on EVM execution or whatever. Right, right. And so it's like the, the guarantee of the Ethereum L1 protocol is, is quite tight. It's like we, we guarantee that this data will have been published on the network for this amount of time. Beyond that, obviously there's still ways to retrieve that data. They're just not guaranteed by the Ethereum protocol, right? And they, it could very well be on IPFS, but that's not a guarantee that the protocol can make, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and, and we've, we, we've touched kind of on this a couple of times already, like this idea of data availability sampling and only verifying, like having each, ver each uh, validator verify parts of the data to make sure that like overall the entirety has been published. Denkra, do you want to give us like a, an overview of how does data availability Availability sampling work um, for call it an intermediate audience, you know, not a photographer. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so the idea between da behind the data availability sampling is that um, you somehow uh, want a scalable way um, to to ensure that uh, some amount of data is available. Like, is basically. And available means you could download it if you wanted to, right? And so the obvious, obviously we know if we download it, which is what we do now, it's available. That's simple, right? Because if you could download it, then you could download it. Okay, but, um, uh, but how do we make it scalable? So scalable means we have the same amount, uh, a constant amount, or maybe increasing a logarithmic amount, but not like a linear amount of resources that we need to do this amount of work. Um, so we, we need to find some way of doing this um, in a more efficient way. And uh, the way data availability sampling does this is um, what, what nodes uh, do is that they sample, they, they pick these random parts of the data and they say, I want this and this and this, and, um, and I'll try to get it. And only if I can get all of these, or maybe a vast majority of them, then I will consider the data to be available. And um, naively, like if you just do this on blocks as they are now, then it doesn't work. And why? Because um, if there's say just one piece of the block missing, the probability that you catch it is tiny because you would have to request exactly that piece of the block and you want to only request a really small part of it. So the probability that you catch it is small. Um, so that doesn't work because we know it like in blockchains, basically the thing with blockchains is like the bad things could happen anywhere. Like even one single missing transaction 
could screw up the whole system. So you cannot allow any part of the data to be missing. Like just sampling directly doesn't work. So what you have to do instead is you have to first encode the data and you encode it in such a way, and that is, this is called um, Reed Solomon uh, codes. You encode it in such a way that, um, uh, that any, any fixed fraction, for example, you can pick 50%. Uh, if any 50% of the data are available, then, uh, then you can reconstruct the whole from that. So you encode it in that way. And now, um, now the scaling becomes different because now you don't have to ensure that all the data is available. You don't have to know that all the samples are available, but you have to know that 50% are available. And that's a task that you can do statistically because um, if you download uh, 30 samples, or, well, I mean, the correct way is like saying like this, if someone is trying to hide, this is the attack we're trying to defend against, right? Someone is trying to hide, hide the data somehow. Um, if they do that, they have to make less than 50% of the samples available. If they make less than 50% of the samples available and you download, for example, 30, then the probability that uh, that you, all of those will be available is two to the minus 30, which is one in a, billion, in a billion. And so it's really small. And by downloading 10 more, you decrease it by another uh, factor of 10. So that, that is a scalable way of ensuring data availability. And that's the principle of how it works. Right, right. Um, and basically building this entire, this entire system uh, is why shipping bank sharding is, is going to take a while. Um, Prolo, can you walk us through like in the meantime, in like the 4844 world, how do we like sidestep that? Why, why can we get away with not uh, not having all this already live. So for background here, first of all, the merge, uh, we separate Ethereum into a consensus layer and execution layer. And we are not throwing more data at the execution layer, but rather we continue to scale the consensus layer. And even then we are only doing so with a limited amount of data. So we're talking about a month or maybe three months some amount of data that is retained after the period, we start to prune the data. And so we can ensure that it's available for layer twos for, for a sufficient amount of time for them to secure their network. But then at the same time, it doesn't grow infinitely, like it doesn't grow indefinitely, where now we have a bounded amount of data to store on a consensus node. We can distribute this between the different beacon nodes. Right, and and I guess just to, to clarify this for the for the listeners, um, the amount of data that we make available in Prolo dank sharding is less than the amount that we make available in full dank sharding. Correct. Um, right. So with full dank sharding, we distribute the job of storing and uh, propagating the data. Uh, between all the nodes on the network, between the different validators. Whereas with EIP 4844, we still require all of the consensus nodes to acquire all of the blob data, but we limit this. We don't make it grow indefinitely, so we can increase the throughput. Got it. And can one of you give me an estimate, like, you know, how much do we lower the cost of storing data 
uh, for layer twos with 4844? And then how much do we lower it further with a full sharding deployment, roughly? Sure. So current Ethereum blocks are anywhere between like 50, maybe tops like 100 gigabytes. It's very variable. But like worst case, it could grow a lot larger, but you are paying for call data, data that is going through the EVM and that's available forever. This is very different type of data that a rollup really needs. So instead you can try and optimize, you can have this different type of data called blob compared to call data. And we can grow it from this order of magnitude from like 50 kilobytes to maybe like a megabyte per block. And this is obviously, this is already a huge increase that rollups could benefit from a reduced cost of And then the full dank sharding, it can go another order of magnitude larger because now we don't have to store all of the data on one node, but we can distribute it across 64 nodes. So we could have a multiplier here and like how we pull the data apart. Got it. So it's like we get an order of magnitude increase with just 4844 in terms of how much data we can have. And then we get another order of magnitude with full dig sharding. Um, and then one thing that, that's been interesting to me to, to, to learn as, as I've been spending time on this is the idea that like the demand for storing data in these blobs or in the full sharding system is like independent or at least decorrelated from the demand to use Ethereum gas, right? Like there might be people who are willing to pay a lot to execute computation and people who are willing to pay a lot to store data, but they don't necessarily overlap. And it's like, it creates two different markets. Um, so can one of you kind of walk us through like how we're like, designing these two different markets and, and isolating them from each other to an extent? Well, so we, it starts with the transaction type where you add this additional fee parameter, but um, with this fee, you create this different market. And so if you really want to, you could separate the transaction pool and the capacity and the type of resource is very different. And I think Vitalik, already wrote a post about a multi-dimensional EIP-1559, where we can try and think of all the different resources in Ethereum as different markets. And then I believe Dunkrat already has a post on how EIP-1559 could work for this type of blob data instead of regular gas. Right, so it's like there's two auctions happening in parallel. One is people bidding for like transaction computation and the other one is people bidding for storage. And we can use kind of the same mechanism, which we have already for, for gas um, and call data, which is like weirdly bundled uh, to, then, uh, to then separate it and have one 1559 that works for gas and one 1559 that works for, for shard data. Um, another thing, uh, we, we haven't touched on this a lot, but um, Vitalik, I think you, you mentioned them earlier on, but uh, that uh, the sharding design requires the introduction of KZG commitments um, and they're kind of like a hash, but not really. Uh, I know, Dankrod, you had like a great post about them. Do you want to explain again and sort of to non-cryptographers uh, what these are and, and you know how they resemble the, the cryptography that's currently in Ethereum and differ from it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so I, I mentioned earlier at the end of explaining sampling um, how the data has to be um, encoded um, in this way that we call a read Solomon code, um, which is a way to ensure that 
um, any 50% of the data uh, can be used to reconstruct the whole data. So, I mean, I guess data is a bit misleading here because there's like the original data, which is the actual payload that we're talking about, uh, but then the code uh, expands this data. So it becomes twice as large in the process as well. Um, and so, um, and so what is a read Solomon code? So a read Solomon code is, uh, um, well, so uh, yeah, we, we call it, it's a, it's a polynomial. So basically what, what, what it means is, uh, you, you've learned about polynomials maybe in your mathematics classes. It's a, it's a certain type of function and, uh, and basically, um, this type of function has the property that uh, that when you when you know it at a certain number of points, which we call the degree of the polynomial, then uh, then you know the whole polynomial. So basically, uh, we use that property um, order to, in order to put this polynomial function through the data. And then if you if you have like a certain number of samples, which is like um, half the amount uh, of the full encoding, uh, then you can get all of them. Um, and uh, and uh, the reason we need KZG co commitments is this, like when you just sample the data, uh, there's one thing that you can't decide from those samples. And that is um, whether the encoding is correct. What if someone just like read Solomon calls have a certain structure, right? They have a certain uh, structure that allows us to reconstruct the whole thing. But what if someone encoded it in a different way? What if they just put garbage in it? Then every 50% of the samples would give you different data. And of course, that's not acceptable because the data has to be unique. It has to be that all 50% of the samples give you exactly the same data. And, um, and the way we, we do that, I mean, there are different approaches, but basically uh, over the years, uh, we have ended up here where we just found this uh, amazing type of commitment, uh, KT or KZG commitment that you can basically see as a hash. It's similar to a hash of um, uh, data, but with the property that instead of hashing to just data, it hashes a polynomial. So it's a way to hash a polynomial function and, uh, and basically um, reveal any point on it. And so that guarantees that this, this, uh, this correctness of the encoding. And that's why we need uh, these KZG commitments. Got it. And as I was reading about KZG commitments, uh, one of the first things you stumble on as a non-cryptographer is they require a trusted setup. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I'd be curious for the viewers to walk through, like, what, what actually, what are the trust assumptions in a trusted setup? You know, like, what are mm -hmm. the things that, like, we are trusting in that setup? And um, as we uh, as we make one to, to to kind of enable this on on Ethereum, is there things mm -hmm. that like end users can do uh, so that they can have kind of a higher assurance that the setup was performed correctly and like minimize the trust assumptions they are making individually? Right. Yes. Um, yeah. So basically, the trusted setup is like basically what we, what we have to do is we have to. Uh, generate uh, these elliptic curve points that have a certain relation. That's that's like one of the fundamental inputs um, of the of the KCG commitment scheme, and uh, the trusted setup is basically a way 
And okay, and in addition to that property that they have a certain relation is nobody is allowed to know the actual relation between them. So the, this has to be a secret and that's why it has to be this trusted setup. And it's called trusted setup because like one of the ways to do a trusted setup is just to say, hey, we all trust Tim, Tim, you do it and you give us the output and then it's done and you throw it away and everything will be fine. Uh, but the problem is, of course, that's not really sufficient for uh, the Ethereum community. People would be like, well, what, what if? Um, so instead, we have this way of distributing this trust and saying, like, um, we let many, many people participate in this trusted setup. And, uh, and we can design trusted setups um, in a way so that if even a single one of these uh, uh, people that participate in it um, did it according to the protocol. And the protocol means that you, you execute this whole thing, you run this program, send your output, and then you destroy your data. Like you destroy the secret that you've used to do it. You don't, you don't keep it. And if even a single person out of the potentially thousands that are going to, set, to participate uh, did this properly, then the setup is completely safe. So even like, let's say 1,000 people do this, 999 colluded and they all kept their secret and they come together and try to reconstruct it. But one person did it properly and they don't have it. Even in this case, these 999 people know absolutely nothing that helps them to break it. Um, so that's the security guarantee, which we call like N minus one. So even if N minus one collude, they can't get anything on that last person that participated properly. And yes, I mean, obviously this property ha this has a nice property that if you are really, really worried about this and are like, oh my God, how can I trust these people? Um, then you can just participate. So like one obvious way is if you participated and you know you did things properly, then you don't need to trust anyone because you're part of it and um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's done. So like you, you can consider it secure. Obviously, there are also all the parts of like making sure that all the software works properly and so on that we're all very familiar with in our blockchain systems. Like all of this, we're relying for the function on Ethereum as well. But so obviously it has all to be very well audited and uh, we need several implementations of this as well. But yeah, so that's, that's, I guess, like the other trust assumption that we have to make sure that all the software is safe and works properly. Right. So there's like kind of different levels. It's like either, you know, you don't care at all and you just trust that somebody somewhere has been honest. Um, and maybe you just, it's not that you don't care, but you learn about Ethereum 10 years from now, which is basically what you have to do because you, you can't participate. If you're, if you're part of the Ethereum community today, there's going to be an opportunity for people to participate individually. So then as long as you're confident that like your participation was, was correct, then, then the, the whole output should be correct. And then if you're even kind of more concerned, uh, there's a specification from which we can write different implementations. So I assume, you know, if you didn't trust the existing ones, you could write your own and also produce an output um, or at the very least kind of review the code of the different ones and make sure that they, they, they match up um, and yeah. You, you would kind of get a, a high level of certainty that things uh, are correct. Um, okay, and I guess the, 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 we're, we're, we're coming up on time here. Uh, the last thing I did want to talk about is like, how do we actually get this deployed? Um, which is the part I'm usually get involved in. Um, I know Proto, you started prototyping 4844 uh, along with, with some other folks. Uh, can you give just kind of a quick summary of like, 
what was done so far in terms of prototyping and, and what do you think are like the next steps that uh, the community can expect? Right, so earlier this year, it started with an initial write-up of what it could be like. Then during the hackathon in Denver, it transformed into this software where we have an actual implementation of the proposal. And over time, we have been improving that and testing that. And what we need to go and do from here is there are two, these two different branches, right? Where we want to further develop the client software to be able to make a test network. And we want to continue the development on this trusted setup so that we do have the cryptography, everything there on that side all set as well for when we do want to deploy this. And then uh, once we have both ready, we can make larger and larger test nets and then eventually include it as an EIP via the Alcor DevOps process into uh, Ethereum mainnet. Got it, got it. So we have some initial prototypes. We want to product, like grow them, make them more robust, make sure the trusted setup is working according to plan. And then once we have that, it kind of becomes a normal EIP. We need to shepherd through the, the process. Um, and then uh, one thing that, that's worth noting about 4844 is what's very neat about it is from the execution layer point of view. So like the, the kind of smart contract and end user transaction generation point of view, um, sharding is basically done then like uh there's no more changes that we'll do uh for people to interact with this blob data what what will happen is then we need to deploy kind of this entire dank sharding uh infrastructure on the consensus layer um but from applications point of view that that kind of just happens in the background um but at the consensus layer dankrad like what are what are the steps to get this deployed like how many how many hard forks do we need to get there uh, you talked a lot about like proposer builder separation before so like what do you see as like the logical set of stepping stones to get us to the full full sharding on on a consensus layer <laughs> yeah i mean i i hope it's uh, it's two but uh, <laughs> i don't know yet i think like um so clearly like uh, i mean this is the reason why we chose this a stepping stone of protodank sharding that it's a it's something that gets us substantially closer to the full implementation so it will become simpler it will like the interface for example will stay the same uh, the execution layer changes will be minimal once that's implemented um, so that's why it's really nice if we can get that done um, in the shanghai hard fork um, and then, um, I mean, I think it's very unlikely that will be the next hard fork after that, um, but uh, hopefully relatively soon, um, we will get, uh, yeah, um, we'll get this. I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's currently still, uh, there, there are still like some things we definitely need to work on. Like there's, there's a lot of work on the network working to be done to have, um, yeah, full, um, sharding rolled out, um. I I currently have no exact estimate, but I would hope That's, that uh, that can be done in one hard fork. Okay, I sympathize with not being mm -hmm. able to give direct estimates about complex projects, so I won't push you on there. Um, and and maybe yeah, to, to to kind of close this off, like Vitalik, like if people want to contribute from like the re from a research or like engineering point of view, like what are like the big open questions in sharding land that they should spend their brain cycles on? Mm. I think uh, one 
problem is definitely like figuring out the networking of uh, data availability sampling. Like there are designs that we have um, that work in theory, right? Like there's uh, doing it based on subnets. Uh, there is the uh, uh, approach of trying to make a DHT much faster. There's um, a couple of other techniques in the middle, um, but like really taking those ideas and from an engineering perspective, like just trying to optimize it really hard. Right? Like how do you actually make a, uh, basically it's like a specialized uh, scalable DHT we are publishing and downloading uh, can happen extremely quickly. Um, so that's one problem. And I think in general, like in the Ethereum ecosystem, uh, the networking side is um, one of the sides that's talked about the least. I mean, possibly just, um, I think a bit of an accident of history that the uh, Ethereum core research community just happens to like never really have uh, people who, uh, like spent a lot of time thinking about networking stuff. It's generally like people spend a lot of time thinking about, um, you know, cryptography and consensus economics, uh, but it's still a really important problem. And it's a problem where I think uh, it would be amazing if uh, we can have more like very active uh, networking expertise in Ethereum. So that's a short term, uh, or that's like a very clear problem. Another problem is um, that with folding sharding, um, there's this issue of like how to combine it well with uh, proposer builder separation. And there, uh, there's some like economic challenges. There's still the challenge of like, well, how do you actually make a good proposer builder separation protocol? How do you add like censorship resistance lists so you can bypass uh, censoring builders? And once again, there, like we have ideas on each of those things, but there's still the question of uh, digging into the details combining a PBS design with the uh, design of Ethereum's future proof of stake, which is uh, something that uh, at some point we'll probably start um, having to kind of talk and think more about, right? Like, like if there's been this uh, increasing effort within the Ethereum uh, research and the protocol community of basically thinking through what would a yeah, better uh, proof of stake design look like in the long term? Like, you know, do we want to have single slot finality? How do we achieve single slot finality? What other benefits can we achieve? Um, how can we offer more in protocol of what Lido offers to people extra protocol uh, to try to reduce um, you know, staking pool centralization incentives um, and uh, just generally increasing simplicity. Right? So I've written a bunch on that. Like if you just you know Google for single slot finality, you can probably find it. Um, but the do it that and the intersection of that and proposed builder separation the, and the intersection of that and uh, sharding is um, in a, going to be another research area going forward. Um, and then the other one is uh, also adjacent to uh, dank sharding stuff, um, but uh, and also adjacent to 4444 stuff, which is uh, very critical to. Um, Proto-dig sharding and dig sharding actually being viable and just generally Ethereum scaling well is like creating the like as decentralized um, as possible and as robust as possible uh, systems to give people the same guarantees that they uh, come to expect uh, out of uh, Ethereum in terms of history retention, but without requiring participants in the core Ethereum consensus protocol to like all be retaining blocks forever, right? So. Uh, there's a, a team working on portal. There's things like the graph, like there's this big long list of projects, right? Um, and uh, trying to figure out, you know, how to make those better or even create better alternatives to those, I think also an important area.
Um, yeah. Oh, also, um, oh. one last one I really wanted to throw yeah. in. This is important. Um, the switch to layer two um, is, um, I think, one where it's very important for the ecosystem to try to maintain and even improve its uh, decentralization going through that switch. And so, you know, we need light clients that can poke into optimism and poke into Arbitrum and poke into uh, StarkNet. Um, and uh, that's something that there's been a bit of like theoretical thinky work on, um, but it's the sort of thing that um, I think there is a lot of room for people to swat themselves in and uh, like really try to imp uh, improve that ecosystem a lot, um, right? Like basically try to like really think through if everyone's really going to migrate over to L2 over the next that's well to 24 months, um, especially as prototype sharding uh, comes alive and the uh, roll-up costs uh, go down even more. Like how do we really make sure that transition goes well and that, and that it preserves all of the, uh, decentralization properties and even improves on those properties um, that we've uh, come to expect of uh, Ethereum. Yeah, that's a really good list. Um, we have like five minutes left, so I wanted to leave, leave a bit of time for the three of you. If there's anything you wanted to share that you think is important about sharding or 4844 or Ethereum generally that like we haven't talked about, um, the floor is yours whatever you want to rant about or get people to pay attention to. Um. I mean, the last week has been kind of chaotic to say the least. Uh, I think this is like the type of market where if you feel a little bit down, like maybe read a post, try and get involved with new some projects. This is the, not the bear market, it's the builder market. Read the, the specs for the EIP. There is the site called EIP4844.com to help get you started. And then uh, there, are, there are simple diagrams and all the way down to like very elaborate posts about crypto, cryptography involved. And uh, yeah, just reach out and get building. Stay optimistic, by the way. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Vitalik. Anything else you want to share? You know, stay optimistic, but um, in the long term, hopefully, uh, stay zero knowledge. Mm. <laughs> wow. Mm. <laughs> Anything you add, Dikrad? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I think, I think the week has shown that um, uh, that that you need solid designs and that we need to like um, build things that can actually last and that are yeah built built to last and. Um, uh, won't go away and that that's what we're trying to do here and um yeah so i i'm, I'm optimistic on this but yeah i am clearly also pessimistic about many other things that are happening in the ecosystem so uh, we just have to be better and build better love it um yeah then that's basically a wrap the bankless guys did ask me to end with a disclaimer. So uh, here it goes. Uh, and I'm reading from the screen now. Risk and disclaimers. Crypto is risky. You could lose what you put in, but we're headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. Um, and yeah, thanks a ton, Proto, Vitalik, Bankrad for coming at a bunch of different hours across your respective time zones. Um, I think this has been really helpful to explain the entire sharding roadmap to, to people.